person has to appreciate what happens to a person's property when if they pass, and if it's two hundred thousand or a hundred thousand or two hundred million, person's going to want it to go in a certain way. Maybe to protect the spouse, maybe to protect children. Um, the law may do that; it may not. Um, and it's necessary to give some thought to that. And people will say, well, maybe it doesn't really matter because I have everything jointly with my spouse, so it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But it's a little bit short-sighted. What happens to your money after you die? This and other questions are critical to ask yourself, and most people don't think about it. Power of attorney, healthcare proxy, right? If God forbid something was to happen to you, who makes the medical decisions? Do you have a will? HIPAA release forms, a list of assets, where do you keep a password document that people that you love can access? There's so many questions, and I would say this is one of the, we've done almost 30 episodes now, this is one of the top five episodes in terms of importance. This is something that I've thought about a little bit, I took care of some of it, but it's critical. It's critical. No, this is not the most exciting investment, making loads of money type of conversation. But A, you can save yourself a whole lot of money. Um, and it's important to have these conversations with loved ones. And if you implement the things that Alan Gibber, who's basically wrote the book on estate planning, not basically he did, it's I think now in its seventh edition, um, he's been doing this for over 40 years. If you follow what he says, you'll be in a much better place, God willing. Um, he is, don't be fooled, just from his estate planning side, he is a learned scholar. He wakes up at 4 a.m. He's finished Shas multiple times. He is voted the top lawyer in Maryland and the U.S., I would tell you that he is someone you should reach out to if you need help in this space. Um, full disclaimer, he happens to be Zevi Wallman's father-in-law from Living Smarter Jewish. And when I reached out to Zevi and I said, I want someone that literally wrote the book on this. He said, you know, my father-in-law did. I said, Zevi, come on, come on, come on. I, I really need someone. He said, no, no, I'm serious. I, I think he's the right person for it. But obviously we have to put that disclaimer in. And it checks out. It was the right person for this conversation. So, without further ado, I give you Alan Gibber. Being a Jew? Awesome. Managing personal finances? Not so awesome. Welcome to Kosher Money. Welcome back to Kosher Money. I'm excited about this interview. I read an entire book about financial planning I have a book here called an estate book, Ellie Langer and Allison Langer, that's my wife. And I don't think most people have done or are thinking about the conversation we're going to have today, which is why I'm excited to have it. How are you? I am fine. Thank you. It's good to be here. Um, we're here. I think we're approaching 30 episodes and it's time we talk about estate planning, wills, things of that nature. Uh, before we, we get into it, who are you and uh, why do we think, at least, you're the right person for the job? Um, my name is Alan Gibber. Um, I am an attorney. I practice estate and trust law. been doing so for about 50-plus years. Um, I've done a fair amount of writing 
and um, lecturing on, on the topic generally, on the topic as it relates to the Orthodox community. Um, I have a wide range of clients, and I do a fairly sophisticated estate planning practice and estate administration, trust administration. So it's something that I spend a fair amount of time on. Gotcha. So when I think of estate planning, or at least growing up, I think this applies to rich people, right? You need millions of dollars because if it's a uh, $100,000, $12,000, $300,000, there's no issues that can pop up when there is no real money at play. Is that a misnomer and why? It clearly is. Um, unfortunately, is not one that is recognized as much as it should be. Um, I always tell you that that first, a person has to appreciate what happens to a person's property when if they pass, and if it's two hundred thousand or a hundred thousand or two hundred million, person's going to want it to go in a certain way. Maybe to protect a spouse, maybe to protect children. Um, the law may do that, it may not, um, and it's necessary to give some thought to that. And people will say, well, maybe it doesn't really matter. Because I have everything jointly with my spouse, so it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But it's a little bit short-sighted because um, when there's children involved, so one of the primary things that a person has to think about is if, God forbid, something happens to the parents, what happens to the children? And the American legal system, like all legal systems, say, well, we'll give you the opportunity to tell us what you want. We'll let you fix the rules. But every system needs a default system. And without a default system, so then there it becomes uh, unwieldy. And what happens is um, that nobody would know what to do. How close to that does that default system uh, um, react to or um, recognize the needs of a particular family, for example? Um, and the intestate, intestate laws, the laws that apply when there's no will, um, divide things typically equally between a spouse and a child. Does that make sense? If there's $200,000 and um, there's a minor child, and what happens then? Question number one. Question number two, and more importantly, um, who's going to raise the children? The court's going to be involved because, by definition, the courts are always involved when it comes to the appointment of a guardian, a guardian of the person, a guardian of the property. Um, and the court, the statute says that the first place the courts want to look to is what the parents provided. Did they nominate somebody? Did they tell us who they want? That'll have a high level of priority. But if you don't have that, now the court's going to sit back and make a decision. And how's the court going to make a decision? Well, people are going to come forward and say, I think this is best. No, I think this is best. No, I think this is, I'm better. No. You know, my, my brother would have wanted me to do it. No, my sister would have wanted me to do it. And now you've created a level of adversity mm -hmm. that is totally unfortunate and in truth, in, in truth um, is, is a terrible way of planning. So what a, a young family needs a will to protect the children in the first instance, protect a general plan in the second instance, and 
put together some of the other things that are necessary, a power of appointment, a power of attorney, a uh, medical directive. You know, there are other documents sure. that have to be made part of that. And that's another area in which, you know, without having a decision made for by, by the individual, so the state has told us how they're going to make the decision. And especially with medical, we can do more talk about that more yeah. a little bit later. But those are the areas in which a person needs to give consideration to because um, they are very important. And without having something in place, typically what would happen would be contrary to what, a pe- what people might want. Yeah, and I'd love to go through it one by one. Um, but can you think of a story where someone didn't plan well and they ended up in the court system where if they had planned, they could have avoided a lot of stress and grief for the family? The answer is clearly. Um, anytime a person, a young parent dies without, um, parent dies without a will, um, there's always that level of stress. There's always that level of concern. Um, especially when you overlay it with the halakhic considerations, mm. with the legal, with the Jewish law considerations, because if a person leaves an adult child, they can have an accommodation that's made um, where the child can be mocho, can, can give up his right in favor of his mother, for example. Right. Well, you can't do that if a child's a minor. There's no, there's no method for allowing that to happen. Um, the, the, the Jewish law is very specific when it comes to real property, uh-huh. different than other types of property. Well, what happens if somebody leaves real property? Um, and then how do we deal with that? How do we, who's in charge of that? Um, in, 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 in the, according to Jewish law, there's, quote, an apotropist, and apotropist is really a guardian or, or trustee, has rights, has obligations, mm-hmm. um, but has limitations, and those limitations are not always the same. Um, and there becomes a, could be a, a major conflict that occurs. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had cases in which um, we had issues about what to do with the business mm. because at the end of the day, the business belonged to a combination of a spouse. And remember, under Jewish law, spouse's rights are pretty limited. Mm-hmm. Um, a spouse and minor children. How does that work? Mm-hmm. Where do you take that? How do you make that without planning? Uh, that becomes a real, real issue. I would imagine people are driving, listening, cooking in the kitchen, listening to this episode. And they realize not only do they not have something in place, they didn't even consider or think about the importance of having something in place. They're not educated to have this. So I just want to go through top level. I know you've mentioned a few, and I've tried to create a list. Tell me if I'm missing anything. Uh, power of attorney. Correct. Healthcare proxy. Mm-hmm. A will. Correct. A trust. Possibly. A HIPAA release form. Okay. List of assets. Some people don't even know what they have. And then even if they do have a list, how do you find it? Where is it? Where is it kept? The, the, the document storage. Um, and then you talk about raising children. Did I miss any important pieces? And we'll go through each one. Um, I, I actually have my own estate book here. And I did it. And then I told someone, okay, um, I found this non-Jewish woman in Alabama. And she was a great price. And then they said, what about the halachic, the, the Jewish law applications? And I said, what? And I guess I have to We, go can, we can discuss that. We can, yeah. Mm-hmm. I have affidavits in here, healthcare proxies, last will and testament, durable power of attorney, medical proxies, healthcare agents, you know, through the whole thing. But 
Why don't we go through them one at a time? Let's go one at a time. You pick, you tell me let's what you want to do. Let's start with the medical first. Okay, go ahead. Um, and I only picked the medical first because that's the one that typically would be activated before the others. Um, and a medical directive um, is a very important document for a, a number of reasons. And one of those reasons is to for a person to be able to identify what it is that a person might want for end-of-life decision-making. Now, um, there are wide ranges of issues that, that, can, that can be encompassed within that. Um, and whether or not a person, the, I do not resuscitate order, does a person understand what that means? Does it, what's the impact it has on care? Um, and in the orthodox world, um, it is critical because the prevailing rules that are used or the quality of life tests that people apply, not necessarily valid under Jewish law. Mm -hmm. And again, systems, the, 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 the systems that are in place are in place in order to provide for default decision-making. Mm -hmm. And with what was the cruising case, the case that went to the Supreme Court and established the right to die um, rights, which people, by the way, just tangentially, I would tell you that uh, people forget that that case not only established the right to die, it also established the right to live. Mm -hmm. So it also gave the people the right to say, I, want to, I don't want to die. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are rights that, atta that attach to that. But that came a whole new industry of this medical directive, and it went through a lot of, 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 of um, different, different steps it went through. It was originally just a, a living will and directives, and every state has its own, and they've developed them. But basically what it does, it tells you that there are decisions to be made, and there are criteria upon which decisions are to be made. And how do I make those decisions? Um, so a person will say, well, I'm making because I saw um, Aunt Becky die, and I never would want to die that way. Mm -hmm. uh, a person can say, well, I, I make a decision because um, I've, you know, I've asked my rabbi. My rabbi said there are laws that have to be followed and rules that have to be adhered to. Um, but if I have the right to make that decision, then I should be able to put it down on a piece of paper and make that decision. And that's critical, because what happens if you don't do it? So many jurisdictions have rules that say that absent a person designated, there will be a committee that's designated. The committee is usually the committee of the hospital, an ethical committee of the hospital, of the, or the provider, better said, that will make decisions. And those decisions will be based on such things as their, their, their view of what the quality of life is, on their view of allocation of assets, of resources, uh, where the particular equipment should go or shouldn't go, and where we need it best, and uh, I'm will willing to remove something from patient A so that patient B has a better chance. That, well, those are all decisions. Sounds like a disaster waiting it is to a happen. It is a disaster that's waiting to happen. And I will tell you just, uh, in my own experience, it is such a disaster waiting to happen. Many hospitals have refused, have been backed away from this, and have 
and basically said, well, well, we're not really quite ready to get there yet because mm. there's too much involved in, for us to make those decisions. But there are not, that's not universal. So that there are people, there are, there are decision making, makers that are making decisions like that. But if you have a, doc, a directive, say, this is what I want. This is what should be. Mm -hmm. So let's look at what some of the particulars are. There. Because first, a person should know that their own health and the nature of any, any God forbid, illness that they have has a major impact on what that document should say. I'll give you an example. Um, I recently did a document for somebody who unfortunately has ALS. Mm -hmm. um, and normally, uh, intubation, normally certain things are types of things which are encouraged. This person, uh, a from individual, um, had a a ruling based on something that Shlomo Zaman, a well-recognized postdoc from decisor uh, from from Israel, had made that allowed a different a different route to take a different route to take a different approach to his care. Um, specific, very specific, and we we crafted one that was very specific to his needs. So there are situations that require very specific attention. More generally, more generally, so there are uh, a lot. I've created documents. Of, I've created some from the good of some for other organizations that have documents that allow you to basically set forth. I want decisions to be made. I want them to be made in accordance with what is my 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 religious practices, mm -hmm. and th that's how I want the decision to be made. There's some parameters or some uh, opportunities for a little bit of uh, preference, but they're not very large. We'll go into the detail, details of it, but I would tell you that I think that the most important part of any such document, mm -hmm. there are three aspects of it that a person has to think about. The first one is, who are they nominating? Step number one. Step number two is, if they're doing one that is tied to the Jewish law, then they must designate who's going to make the decision. Because if I nominate three of my children to be the agent to make a decision, and they each have their own rabbi to go through, I'll have four decisions, and I've, I've not accomplished anything. I've not moved the needle at all because they will not, not, they will not know what to do. Is that a healthcare proxy? Is that That's the healthcare. Term? Yeah, okay. in the healthcare, it's a healthcare. Some call it a healthcare proxy. Some call it a medical directive. Some call it a living will. They're all the same. Okay. I mean, they have different nuances as to what they apply to. But at the end of the day, they are basically the document that says so and so, Mr. Agent, Mrs. Agent, has the ability to make a decision. If I'm unable to make that decision, and that's a binding decision for me. Got so it. that's the document. So that document should say that if there comes to the point where it's an end of life or other decision of such magnitude in which I need to consult with uh, a halachic, with a rabbinic authority, mm -hmm. name it. Name that authority. Because otherwise you've created a problem. And I would tell you that another issue that people have deal with is who they're nominating as their agent. And some say, well, I have a large family. I'm not going to name all my children. That makes no sense. I have one mother. This one's a doctor. This one's a nurse. This one knows what I feel. I'm going to nominate that person. That's okay. But what, they, what I always tell people, you have, you have other children, and maybe you don't want everybody involved in the front line of it, but you should give everybody that HIPAA 
release. Mm. Let every child be entitled to receive information. Let every child be entitled to call the nursing station to find out how, how dad's doing. Because if you don't do that, and then the child calls up and he says, well, how's my father doing? They look at him and says, I can't talk to you. You have to speak to your, I can only speak to your sister. Mm. Right? That's not a good way of creating family harmony. Mm. Right? And it's so important that, that we shouldn't do that. What you really should do is say, I want anybody, any of my children, let them all call. You know, nurses are not going to like it. They'll get over it. But the, the, because they don't want to answer so many questions. The doctors don't want to answer, but, you know, so the doctors say, get together, do something to make it work practically. Right. But you should not exclude anybody, even if one person is the agent, but you're going to make everybody entitled to receive that, that, that otherwise qualified information and becomes a, a much different document and it creates a different family harmony that's really very important, especially at that time. I was thinking about how our forefathers dealt with this, but but thousands of years ago, people just sneezed and they perished. You know, they didn't have these, you know, intricate decision making throughout the process. And I can imagine how a family can additionally suffer when they do have an aging parent and they need to make decisions. And and there's a lot of um, relationships and decisions that go into that. What do you do to, and, and we'll get back to the list, I, I, we've discussed healthcare proxies and a HIPAA release form, but if, you, if people are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and they realize, hey, my parents don't have something like that, is there a good way of going about educating without scaring them that, hey, death can be real, right? You, I can imagine someone calling up a parent and saying, we really need to take care of this. And they say, what are you talking about? I'm young, I'm healthy. It's way too early to be thinking of that. And to piggyback off that, should people in their 20s and 30s be taking this into consideration? Okay, good question. I would tell you that I had a 70-year-old client, mm-hmm. who had a, a, a wealthy client, and came to me and uh, urged him to do estate planning. And I put together a, a really an elaborate estate plan for him. Pretty sophisticated state plan. He takes it home, and he looks at the documents, and he says, I'm not going anyplace. Mm-hmm. I don't need this. And didn't get done. Um, the answer is that, to begin with, um, some of these documents are to protect the parent, to protect the parent when they're alive. Um, a, a medical directive is to protect the patient, that the patient's desires are met. And it doesn't have to only be end of life, because there are other situations in which it, 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 if a parent just is not able to make a decision, and it's a question during the course of an operation, what should happen? Somebody has to have the ability to make that decision. So who, who does that? Um, that's, that's number one. Um, and I think the most direct way is to say, Listen, uh, we're a family. We need to know what it is that you want, and you don't have to tell us, but it, it has to be someplace because we want to do what you wanted us to do. And there are things that are going to become might become necessary. Um, a power of attorney is something that is very important. What is a power of attorney? Okay, for those sorry, that don't know? sorry. No, our okay. power of attorney is is an it creates an agency relationship. So that is an agent and a principal. 
I have a bank account. Mm-hmm. In the bank account, I have the right to sign on the bank account. If I'm not able to do that, or better said, I want to let somebody else also sign on that bank account, I appoint that person as my agent. Gives them the ability to do what I could have done. And I can make that general so they can do absolutely everything that I can do. I can make it very specific. I only allow you to go into this particular account, sell this particular property, take care of a particular item, or make it more general and anything in between. And it is a, a very necessary document because what happens if a person becomes disabled? So a person becomes disabled, then they don't have the ability to attend to their own financial matters. So who does? Well, we go back to that same thing we started with. Um, there's a default provision in the law. And the default provision in the law says, if there's nobody able to handle the matters of an individual, the financial matters primarily, well, that's primarily a, 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 a durable power of attorney, is typically the financial matters, the medical directive takes care of the health issues. Um, if there's nobody who's there able to make a decision, so then we will appoint a guardian. That's an official guardian of the person, the guardian of the property. So that not you, son, have been appointed because we've looked over the list of people and we think you're the right person and nobody's come and complained. So you're now the person in charge. Well, two things happen with that. Whenever you say the court has to make a decision, you know that's not the right way to go. And what will happen in essence is that number one, there's going to be a choice of who it should be. Maybe it's the right person chosen, maybe it's not. Um, sometimes courts look outside of a family if there's a dispute that might be potentials. They'll look to an independent person. So that's also expensive and typically unnecessary. There are annual accountings that are required in most court uh, guardianship proceedings. There's a participation of the court. There's the overview. There's the public attention to it, right? all types of issues. All that is averted if a person simply says or simply does a power of attorney and says, I does designate my son to, be, to stand in my place. And it's as simple as that. And all those other issues then are averted. The issue, though, I, I, we should talk about this for a moment as well, because this is an issue that is, is one which is fraught with a lot of difficulty. And that is, how does one choose on how, who should be the, the agent? person has, you know, people make mistakes. And the mistakes that you often find is, um, oh, I don't need a power of attorney because I put all my, all my money is in the bank. I have a bank account, and I've designated my daughter to, take, to be able to sign my name to this account. Something happens to me, so my daughter can take care of it. So what is the daughter going to say when the person dies? Well, it depends. Um, the father, you ask the father, the father says she knows that she's the, on behalf of her siblings. That's a, that's a leap of faith that's often not warranted because oftentimes that same daughter will say, what do you mean? I took care of dad. I was the one that was there. I did everything that was necessary. He put it in my name. Obviously, it's my account. Legally, she might be right. But was that the intent? Clearly not. So therefore, a person has to be very careful with that type of uh, setup of putting in one person's name, one child's name. So what's the alternative? So you make a power of attorney. So you make a power of attorney and say, okay, I'm granting you not the right as the holder of the account upon my passing, but you'll have the right to sign my name effectively. 
And then that asset doesn't really transfer over. It depends on how it's done, but that doesn't transfer over to the holder, to the agent, but is held for the estate, whatever else is there. Um, I think that the area in which the most abuse that we see generally is in the power of attorney area. Because the ability to get a power of attorney from a parent, uh, for a child to convince a parent that he or she is the right person, when there's real diversity or adversity between the siblings, um, then um, it, it inevitably ends up with a major battle. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm, I've been inv involved in battles when there's, you know, a billion dollars worth of fighting over, over. You had the authority, you didn't have the authority. You, you, you undo influence on, on mom, and that's why she did this. And um, you had this power of attorney, but you were not supposed to do it for and to move things so that they benefit you. How about what happened to me? And why did you have it? And why did it take it away from me? All those are issues that are critical. So a person should say to a parent, person says, hey, son, listen, I'm one of several. We're all coming to you because we want you to do it in a way that will prevent those types of issues. And I think that's a major thrust that a person can say to a parent, um, even a parent who's reluctant to, uh, to, to face these issues, say, listen, we need you to, what greater legacy would you want for us than shalom, than peace amongst the family? And if you don't take care of things, then I will tell you that you've created the potential for disunity, you've kind of this lack of harmony, mm -hmm. and we don't want that, and we, we're coming to you jointly to tell you that we want you to take care of it because what you see today is, is a family that's together. When you're not here, there are no guarantees, and therefore we want you to put in place the documents, the plan, the understanding, and the thought that's necessary to make this thing work for us as well. And I think that's, a, that's something which would resonate with people. At the end there, were you describing a will? Is that you, you create a power of attorney, but also... Well, whether what, it's a will or a trust or any other document... What's the trans difference between the, the okay. two and okay, what so, should people be uh, okay, doing? Okay, so let's talk a little bit about trusts. Um, a trust is a vehicle. Um, in legal terms, it's something like a corporation. It's its own entity. It stands as a separate item, um, and um, the, the goal of the trust is, could be, let's take a trust that I, I would take go today, I would put $1,000 into a trust for the benefit of my son, um, and assume he listens, though I better say, or my daughters. Um, and then, um, uh, and what happens to that money? Well, that money, from the moment it's transferred into the trust, it's held by this trust document. Mm -hmm. Trust means that there is a trustee. A trustee is a person who is charged as a fiduciary with, with state law, with law that requires him to adhere to the rules of the trust. Um, and it transfers, quote, legal title. So the legal ownership of this might be in the trustee, but the beneficial interest the right to the enjoyment of this property vests in who's named as the beneficiary. So there are reasons why people do trusts. Lots of estate planning, sophisticated estate planning is done via trusts. Uh, there are all types of trusts that can be used for, very, uh, for, for a variety of reasons. 
all with different estate and gift and income tax consequences and you know, we in this field we play play one against the other in order to create uh, opportunities. But on the more simple level, on this more simple level, um, there are many jurisdictions, New York being one of them, where a person would benefit by putting all of his assets into a trust and not rely on a will. Mm. And the reason for that is that the probate process in at least parts of New York are are delayed. And difficult, and um, they 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 can be sometimes expensive and unnecessary. Because if I put assets into a trust and I say hold these assets until I die, and then when I die, give it to my son, mm-hmm. I don't have to go to a court for that. The trustee simply writes the check to my son. Mm-hmm. Right. So that that's the the benefit of a trust. Not every situation calls for a trust. Not every sector is conveniently used, can you conveniently use a trust? Um, the, uh, typically, that situation would use what's called a pour-over will, and my will will say, you know, I've created an elaborate uh, a plan of, of, of uh, ultimate disposition of my assets. It's all in this trust. I don't want it to be public. Um, I don't want my assets to be public, so I put it all separate and apart. And then I say, but you know what? I might have left out something. So my will says, whatever I didn't get into the trust, I pour it over. I distribute it to the trust. That's a typical pour over trust, uh, revocable lifetime trust. Uh, That trust, if a person is doing in lieu of a will, it's Mm -hmm. typically viewed that way. It's something which is a testament. It's a it's a intervivos trust which is a testamentary in nature Mm -hmm. because it's the equivalent of what would happen when a person dies well what's the different will as long as i can think i can change my mind well i would want that trust to be able to do the same thing so we call it a revocable trust i give that i can change my mind at any time Mm -hmm. and there are other types of trusts which are irrevocable which are intended to create uh, or take advantage of certain tax laws um, life insurance is a typical thing that people put into an irrevocable trust because it's a way of keeping life insurance out of a person's estate for estate tax purposes. So trusts have a lot of uses and purposes, but but the I think for our purposes, we should view it now as being a testamentary alternative, whether we call it a trust and we do it one way, we call it a will, we do it another way, for purposes of, of having the plan in place, a plan can be either way. So can anyone theoretically create a trust? It doesn't mean you need to have a certain amount of money or it makes sense for someone with a lot more money to create a trust versus a will. Um, so you have to look and see whether or not the, what the purpose of the trust is. A person doesn't need a lot of money. A person can create what's called a bear trust mm-hmm. and create a trust that has nothing in it for a person's lifetime mm-hmm. or uh, and then have the assets pour over into it at a later point. Mm-hmm. So there's no magic to or, 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 or a necessity for there to be a minimum amount. But you have to look and see, why am I paying for a trust? What's the purpose? Do I have a purpose in creating it? What am I gaining with this trust? Then you say, okay, what's the cost of the trust? And then you say, well, you know, it makes sense. It doesn't make sense, and uh, fits into my scheme. A lot of I will tell you that in a theoretical world, you would tell everybody or tell many people in many jurisdictions um, that every asset they own should be in a trust. Will people do that? The answer is no. 
People are not going to do that. They don't like living under the structure where the where their check that they write to pay their their monthly bill is not in their name. It's the name of the trust, mm -hmm. right? There's a certain psychology to it that people are real hesitant to jump into this trust world. Mm -hmm. And that's legitimate also. People have to be comfortable in whatever plan they're putting into place um, and they have to be able to, to live with it. And if a person's not going to live with it, then why go through the exercise and it's not going to work. But, uh, but again, the answer to the question was, uh, what do you say to a parent? What do we need to do? You need to have a plan that's in place because otherwise you're, not, you're doing a disservice to your family. Let's talk about the list of assets. I'm sure if someone passes away, even if they were to have certain documents in place, I don't know necessarily where, or someone wouldn't necessarily know where their father's bank accounts are. Um, and that can change also year to year, right? You right. can create it in 2022, and then 2047 comes around, and there's four more bank accounts, six more credit cards, um, three more safety deposit boxes. What's what's and a partridge and a pear tree. Yeah, yeah. The answer is they absolutely. Um, I will tell you that the greatest source, practically, mm -hmm. of receiving this information, not the way it should be, but realistically, is the mail. Because um, come January, February, March, April now, um, every, every institution that's holding money is sending out a letter of some sort whether it's a tax report, whether it's a financial report, right? You'll, you'll get an incredible amount of information from the mail. And what I tell everybody is that when there's an estate, the first thing to do is preserve the mail mm. because the mail will and go through it carefully. And because from the mail, you'll find uh, indications of assets that you didn't know existed. Um, that's the default method, to be sure. Mm -hmm. And it's the safety net as well. Well, today's day and age, they, they try to make you go a paperless route. So you, Right. You, so, so it's not as good as it used to be, right. which raises the issue is how do I get access to dad's computer? Um, that's been a raging issue in the world, in the secular world of a state administration. Um, you know, the Googles of the world or the whoever's of the world uh, were not quick to allow an executor to have access to somebody's account. And their theory was, I don't know what's on that account. You're telling me, and, and, I, and I know of a situation of a person who had a business and the business was 100% on the computer and nobody had access to it. Nobody had access to it and they tried and they went to the providers and the providers absolutely refused, pointed to the documents that every person signs but never reads and um, it says we're not, we're not giving it to you. Why? Because maybe it has listings in there about his, his old girlfriends or maybe it has listings in there, private things that he wouldn't want anybody to know. So there's been a movement on, on, on a unified law basis and an estate law basis to allow uh, access to it. Um, it is something that if a person is getting access to assets or a list of assets, I would put on the top of the list um, passwords. Um, something that, how do you get access? Where, are, where, where am I going to find all this? I'm going to find this in, 
in in the in in passwords and and how do I get where how to get access to it mm -hmm. so that I can sit down with the computer and get access to it and I don't have to go and ask anybody because you've given it to me. Uh, that's something that's really incredibly important. But passwords change. You can create a will and then you have two more kids. Um, a proxy could die. Things change. So is it about creating a, an annual check-in to ensure everything's up to date? It, it, does a good estate attorney do that with you? And we will get into who can help manage all of that. What's the answer there? So I tell everybody that when they finish writing their will, which for many is a process that takes them longer than they think, uh -huh. um, that every five years they should come back and look at it unless there are major changes in your situation or major changes in the law that you've noticed. Um, it is honored in the breach because people don't always do that. Uh, you know, when I have somebody come back 30 years later and say, do I st my will is still any good? I say, well, it was good then, and for the last 28 years, it was terrible, uh -huh. but it happens to be good now, so you lucked out. But you can't rely on that. Um, the answer is that a person should keep a, an, a list. Um, it's a great thing to tell people. People don't do it. Um, clearly, if there are changes in, in uh, uh, assets and substantial changes in assets, these things should be noted someplace, kept in a, in a file someplace where a person knows how to get to them. Um, those are important things. It's something a person really has to do on their own because as a practical matter, um, the follow-up that might get from professionals won't really get you there. But if, as you, and I have a client who every year sits down and does a whole, has a whole long, I don't know, it's about 10 pages of instructions. Mm -hmm. And every year he reviews it and he sends me a copy of it so I should have a copy of my file. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, is it a good idea? It's a great idea. And now a word from our sponsors. Here's a quote from a testimonial on Approved Funding's website, okay? Lay it on me. Shmuel is a true professional. I have worked with him for a number of years and he has always maintained a high level of professionalism and he knows what it takes to get the job done in good and difficult markets. I am happy to recommend him. There are dozens of these types of testimonials that are not fake. They have names on them, companies, and it's a difficult market right now. Um, you need to be smart, um, just because interest rates are high doesn't mean you can't be clever about the purchase you're making. And I feel like we've been shooting this um, for a year now, yeah. and you've been in the market for a I home. feel like I know Shmuel for, for like 10 years at this point. I also feel like you've been looking for a home for 10 years. Is that a, is that a concern in you? I think it's not. I think it's just a crazy market, and I have the benefit of, you know, I'm, I'm in an apartment that I didn't grow out of yet. But if you're in an apartment that you grew out of or you're in a home that you're not happy with and you want to get more bang for your buck and you want to do the best investment possible, it could be for your home or for a building that you're trying to yeah, buy. commercial. Go sure. to Shmuel, give him a call, send him an email, just say hi to him and you ask him for one tip and Ooh, he'll go like you that. away. Yeah. Approvedfunding.com slash mortgages, Shmuel Shaiwitz. Tell them your friends at Kosher Money sent you. And uh, yeah, use the money you save with Shmuel on a new car. And now back to this week's episode. A couple of rapid fire questions, um, maybe more from a secular viewpoint. 
what there are listeners in different countries, different states. What should people be keeping in mind as it pertains to? I have siblings in other states. Um, my parents live in Florida and in New York. Um, there are different rules and laws and regulations related to it. Does that come up a lot in estate planning? And how should one be thinking about that? Okay, so it comes up a lot in two ways. One way is uh, where what person lives has a major impact on the tax portion of the planning. Mm. Um, you know, Florida has benefited not only from the sun, but the fact that they don't have a state income tax and they don't have a state estate tax. You just caused half of our audience to move <laughs> down there. Um, I can't tell you how many of my clients have moved down there. Um, because the the savings are, are substantial, uh-huh. especially when you think you have very wealthy people, um, and they have an estate that has substantial potential estate tax liability. Uh-huh. Uh, Florida has no state tax, no state estate tax. New York has a sixteen percent state estate tax. That's a that's a big number. Right. Uh, so um, um, Maryland also has it, um, but um, so there are the, the issue is for state planning purposes makes a difference. Uh, in terms of documentation, the documents are controlled for the most part by where a person lives. So if a parent is domiciled in Florida, it's the Florida documents that you want to make sure you satisfy the mm-hmm. documents satisfy the Florida requirements. Are there really differences between areas? There are some minor differences. Um, there are some differences that relate to, for example, um, the spouses share. Um, certain Florida has very specific rules about what a spouse must get and for the will to be valid. Um, there are certain states that have different requirements and who can sign the will, who can be the witnesses to the will. Uh, so there you have to be careful about meeting the state law, but if a Florida parent and children throughout the country, mm-hmm. that's not in, typically an issue. I will tell you that there are two issues with multi-state issues, mm-hmm. and that is if a person, let's take a, a person is a, a Florida resident, you know, they got the advice, they moved out to Florida, they like the sun and know its income taxes, but they still own property in New York. Um, the Florida proceedings for probate will not be valid in New York. Mm-hmm. When it comes to real property, each state has has singular jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. So that a person would have to probate that will in Florida, and then in order to pass title to the property in New York, they'd have to do an ancillary or farm person representative, foreign executive provision. There are specific provisions that a person could do in order to meet it. There are ways to avoid that. And that's sometimes that trust that we talked about where people take advantage of transferring legal title so that the legal interest is not is no longer vested in New York. It's vested in the trust, and the trust may be a Florida trust, so I avoid some of the court proceedings. Those are the planning opportunities and planning things that a person should think about. Um, in terms of different um, uh, states, if, if it, there are some differences in the state laws, um, but not enough to make a difference. If I have a plan that I think is valid for my family, I don't have to worry that one lives in one state and one lives in another state. Where there are issues are where there are people who live in different countries. Mm-hmm. Because if I, tr- uh, I create a trust, 
um, for my family. And one child of mine lives in Israel and is a resident of Israel. There are tax complications that attach to that trust because of a fairly, a relatively recent set of rules that the, the, that are put in by the um, Israeli tax laws mm-hmm. um, that will make those trusts more difficult. So a person has to be aware of that. That's where differences gotcha. become um, important. Um, otherwise, it's it's pretty straightforward. Um, you know, people who own apartments in Israel, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you need always a separate, what, what I always tell people is have a separate will. Have a will for the American property, have the will for the foreign. Foreign means not not Maryland and Virginia, Florida and New York, that's all U.S. because of the constitutional um, requirements. But, the, but when you go to another country, once you start having to move documents from one country to another, so it gets more more difficult. You have to do what's called apostille. The apostille is a is a uh, system that was a unified system that was adopted worldwide by many countries um, in order to allow a document to, from America to go to Israel, and you have to get it stamped, and it's it's a process. Like the, so, it's, you have to be aware of that. So I tell people make a separate will, so I don't have to bring my American will to Israel. I bring my Israel will to Israel, and that takes care of that issue. People are always asking us for recommendations, right? We're having an episode. We're talking about seven, eight different documents here. Who should they go to? Is there a one-stop shop? Is there an estate? Is this all a good estate planner that can help someone with this? And what are some red flags if they are to contact someone and say, you know what, maybe that's not the right fit for me? Okay, so that's a good question. I would tell you that there are two aspects to our discussions this morning. And one is the legal part of it. And any, any good estate planner will be familiar with all of those aspects of it. Um, and you know, everybody has their own bent on how they approach things mm-hmm. and their own experience on how they uh, deal and the type of advice that they give. You know, do you give everybody a copy of the documents or don't you? Um, how many people think about the need to put all your children as the HIPAA recipients, right? All those types of things. Though the more experienced people will obviously address those, and a person should go in, um, should as well interview the person as the person is interviewing them, that they're comfortable, that they get a sense of what it is that they want. Because behind all of this is the need that these documents speak to one thing, and that is speak to the need that there should be uh, an ultimate harmony in the family. And it's easy for the parent to say, put this person in place. And that estate plan should say, stop. Think about it. Mm. I can't tell you what to do, but i got to give you a menu of why you should think long and hard about that. You know, even the Talmud tells us that a person should not choose uh, 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 a, a, uh, uh, make unequal distributions of their assets in an estate. It's a terrible thing. Sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes it's appropriate. But I tell people, think long and hard. Because my, my rule is, it's never how much I get, it's how much the other guy got that's the controlling factor. And so those are the types of things that you have to get a sense that whoever you're dealing with will deal with those issues and that the planning you're going to put to place will address mm-hmm. all those types of things because they are very important. 
there's a second aspect of that. The second aspect is the religious aspect of it. Mm -hmm. So are there pl lots of very knowledgeable religious attorneys who deal with this? The answer is yes. Um, but by the same token, a person can go do their estate plan um, and then go to the rabbi and say to the rabbi, listen, I want to make sure that this works. And I've heard about this this uh, this document of indebtedness, this type of a, of, a, of a document that I can use. Uh, can you draw one for me? And mm -hmm. then, uh, so the extent that they haven't addressed it, they need to address it. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, as far as the all the other things that we've talked about, I think they all are within the within the expertise of a good estate planner. And is estate planning a one-time fee? Is it hourly, depending on the extensiveness of the project? How does that usually work out? Or is it just different based on the estate attorney? People want to, and I ask that just because people want to know what they're getting into if they have the right. funds for this. Right. So people have the right to ask. And I always tell people before they come, I said, I have no, I have no idea what it's going to cost you. Mm -hmm. Because I don't know what kind of car you want to buy. I don't know how complicated the situation is. I don't know what it is. When we finish talking for a while and I get a better sense, I can give you some sense of what it is. My practice is simply charge on an hourly basis mm -hmm. based on what has to be done. Um, many people have target numbers. They'll, they'll tell you, if you want to do this, this plan, it costs X number of dollars. It's, it's just a, a function of uh, what everybody's particular practice is. But... A client has the right to know in advance what they're getting into. And the simple way is to ask. If someone did want to get in touch with you, is there uh, an office number? Is there an email address? Yes, yes. Um, I, you, you want me to give it to you over the, over the <laughs> air? But we can, we, we can put it in the show notes if you, you yeah. can share it with us after the show. Um, just because people will have uh, loads of follow-up questions. Okay. And, uh, so my office number is 410 three three two eight five eight zero okay that's my direct line in my office um my i hope you have call holding because uh yeah and my email is a j g my initials a j g at the initials of my firm n as a nancy q g r g dot com awesome we'll put it in the show notes what is the name of your firm the name of the firm is Newberger, Quinn, Gielin, Rubin, and Gibber. That's and I, a lot of names. Right, and I tell my children they should read it in Hebrew because then Gibber's first. <laughs> I like that, right to left. Um, I wanted to talk about, and this is a question we've gotten um, quite a bit on, family businesses. People have relationships with their son-in-laws in business, their uncles, brothers, and sometimes, like any business, it can get contentious. Um, whether it's a nonprofit or for-profit business, it doesn't matter. So the question here is, how do you structure it in a way to avoid arguments, infighting? Um, and this is not just an Orthodox Jewish issue. You can find Italians and Hispanics, and people are people. So it's one thing if they're not related to you, but when you go to the Hanukkah party and they're sitting right there, it gets a little bit awkward. Uh, or any other party. Right. Um, I will tell you that that is probably the most difficult area in order to find a, a, something that really works. And I've done it a lot of different ways, and we've addressed it with a lot of different people. And the first thing to make a distinction is between 
the active participants and the inactive participants, the passive participants. And the first decision that has to be made is, if I have a business, and whether it's my son or my son-in-law or my daughter who are active with me in this business, um, to what extent is their sweat equity really part of the value of the business? It looks like it's mine, but it's not really mine. So that's question number one. Question number two is, that portion which is mine, uh, really my, my, I would want all my children to share because that's what, I, that's what I have, that's what I have that I should develop to the next generation. So when I do that, I say, okay, but that's, that's a number. That's not necessarily an interest in a business. Do I have other assets that I can offset? Do I have assets that I should allow for my, my, my daughter and son-in-law in the business to get their share and my son who's not um, to get something else that is equal in value? It's one approach. Another approach to it is to say that, and, and it depends on the relationship of the siblings um, when it makes sense that there should be a clear division. And I've had cases where a very substantial business, very substantial business, where um, ultimately the son became the one who was involved in, not, these are not Jewish people at all, these are, these are Italian people really, and um, they, the son became a major player in the business and we worked out a plan at a certain time where we valued that business, mm -hmm. and we created a, a fund for the daughter, equal in value to what the business was, with some type of an additional adjustments that are made over time. And the most important part of that whole process is that we then had a, we then had a meeting. We then had a meeting and brought together the whole family, and he asked that I present the plan, and I explained the plan, I explained why the plan is fair, and give everyone an opportunity to know what the plan is, and not only after the parent dies, how come he did that to me? And it went over very well. The daughter was very pleased with it, and gave the, understood, and that, that's one way of doing it. Um, I've had other situations in which we've taken an asset, a, a business, and while they both could be participants, but they can't be in the same room together, and that's not gonna work. So we've created two different, two different structures where the daughter will, will receive none of the business assets but will get cash from what would have been her share of the business assets and, in fact, uh, and then the bigger part of it in a foundation that the daughter will run and the son will run the business. Mm -hmm. You've got to look for ways in which you can create uh, a feeling that I got my fair share. And we did it that way in, in that particular case where the daughter will run a $50 million um, foundation and beside the assets that she got, and the son will run the business, and the daughter feels that, well, she got a fair share because she has the ability now to run this business, what she'll call business, um, make distributions, become popular and socially, and, and et cetera, et cetera. So that's a, just another way of dealing with it. The more typical way that people deal with it is to say, Let's take a look at this business. Uh, this business may have a, a very active business, maybe uh, whatever, whatever it's doing, manufacturing business. And then there's another component to it, and that is its real estate. 
Um, and maybe what I do is I separate the two. And I give the passive people interest in the, in the real estate. I put the active business, the people who are active in the company, and, and they're separate. And I protect both sides so that the, the, the landlord can kick the, the company, the manufacturing company out of the out. What you're looking for is ways of looking at the assets and saying, what cannot work? What cannot work is simply to say, or what may not work, I shouldn't say it won't work, may not work is simply to say, okay, here's a business, um, the, 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 the son is gonna run it, the daughter's gonna have an interest, to it, interest in it, and the end of the year, she has a 30% interest, so she gets 30% of the profits. Mm-hmm. Does that work? Not really. Because what is the dog gonna see? The dog's gonna see that all of a sudden, the son, her brother is driving around in a big car, and where do you get the money for that? I know how much the company makes. It seems to be disproportionate to what I've got out of the company. Mm-hmm. Oh, one second, he got a perk. Company paid for his car. Oh, is the company paying for my car? No, you're not active in the, but, but why is it, that's come out of my profits. Tension, tension, mm-hmm. tension, tension. You know, he, pay, he pays the, he gets his health care. Mine. He has a plan that allows for his tuition to be paid. I don't know. You can think of a dozen different things in which that division doesn't work so well. So can it be structured in a way it works better? Yes. My point is, and I think the point to your question is, and it's a very good, very important question, is you got to sit back, you got to analyze the people, you got to analyze the assets, you got to analyze the opportunities that they present. And you got to put together something in which, at the end of the day, there is less room for battle, more room for satisfaction in what you got. I like that. We'll be right back to this week's episode. But first, if you're in Israel, please look up Kolel Chabad. Even if you're in America. Yeah, I was going to say, it could be in France. No, but I think that Kolel Chabad, it's, it's amazing if you are there with your family to see the work that they're doing. Oh, to, to go there. Yes. They have so many volunteers. That's why their costs are so low, and they're supplying food to Israel's neediest. A lot of people there don't have food, and they've been at this for over 225 years, and I'll keep saying it because I mean it. They're doing God's work. And, and for, for those that are Jewish know this idea, but if you're not Jewish, we'll, we'll, we'll tell you one of the secrets. Will they get it? Yeah. So basically, we have this idea that, that God is always looking out for his children, the human, everyone, but specific, more than typical, he looks out for widows and orphans. And if you could be a part of uh, that mission to help them, to you know, it's it's not an easy life to not have a parent or not have a spouse, and you could be part of that by you know helping them get food or or any shelter, whatever it is. Uh, that's what it's really about, and Kol Chabad helps a lot of widows and orphans. Kolchabad.org slash kosher money. Head over there, donate. You can do a recurring donation. You can probably even do a dollar a day. You can do five bucks a day. Hundred dollars a day. Five dollars a week. If you have a lot of kosher money, do a hundred dollars a day. Thousand. That comes out to fifty-two thousand dollars. Wow. A year. Wow. Really. So if you're making a little over five hundred thousand, ten percent. I'm not telling you to give all of your meiser. I am. Give all of your (laughs) meiser to call chabad. Now back to this week's episode. So I was proactive. I created an estate planning book and proxies and multiple books went out to different siblings and parents and things of that nature, but I didn't think of the halachic, the Jewish law applications of it. Is this completely garbage now, or what do I do in terms of updating or taking into account so I can 
make it right and whole. Okay, so before I answer that, I want to respond to one thing you just said. Yeah. And that is said, I have multiple books I made and I sent out to all the, to these various groups of people. Yeah. Right? Uh-oh. So, so I am um, I, I'm probably not in the majority of thinking in this. What I tell clients is you've made a decision about certain things. It's what you think is right today. And you're comfortable with that decision. Tomorrow you may change your mind. But then you're going to say, oh, wait a second, I've already sent this to the person who I've designated, and I, how can I do that? I'm going to send him, he's, no, he's not the right person anymore, mm. or she's not the right person anymore. So a person can say to themselves, ooh, I really can't do that. So they have forced themselves into making a dis- uh, to not making a change, making or staying with something they no longer think is the right decision, simply because they've given people information that maybe they didn't need at the time. But they're my healthcare proxy. They're my, you know, if something was to happen to me and my spouse, they're the decision maker. Okay. If, if I don't send them a book, they're they're not going to be able to prove it potentially. Well, okay. So what I tell people is, I send them a, a binder. They should you should tell people where it is. You don't necessarily have to tell everybody everything that's in that book. Um, a health guy would agree with you that a healthcare proxy is a more important one because that's something that has to be done. A power of attorney, they should know where it is. A family should know where it is, and they'll be able to find it. Um, that's not something that I needed to know yesterday. Healthcare, you need to know immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why often we create these, uh, you know, just a. Uh, a block of information. I did one recently where he wants to post it on his refrigerator in case um, the the first responders come knocking on his door. They'll see exactly he has very specific instructions. Um, they'll see where it is without having to go look for documents. Uh, so that's I would agree with that. That's something that maybe is more important. But I just think generally, um, especially if people have specific provisions in their wills or whatever documents they're using that puts certain people in charge of different aspects of it. Um, I think a person has to think about doing that. I, a lot of people do it automatically. Um, I suggest to people they ought to give some thought to it before they send it out. Um, and sometimes the older the, the recipients of, of these books, the more you want to give thought to it because that's when it's more possible to change. Mm-hmm. I just thought that for the moment. But let me now answer your second, yeah. the other question. Um, okay, so we have to understand um, the, the question makes an assumption. And the question makes an assumption that if I do a will, let's use the will as the document. Um, if I do a will, uh, that somehow that's not valid under Jewish law. And I would tell you in the first instance, that's not necessarily true. There are um, responses from Ramosha Feinstein that discusses that very issue. And there are discussions somewhat, and a lot of different discussions about whether or not a secular will that creates a plan of disposition that does not reflect the Jewish order of disposition, um, whether it's valid or not. So let's go back one step on that. Well, first, we have to understand what the difference is, because otherwise, what difference does it make? Um, And and there are a lot of differences between what the secular law 
allows, what a person may want, and what the Jewish law, what halacha, the Orthodox Jewish law requires. And there are a, a good number of differences in those two sets of laws. Um, one major difference is um, a wife. Does a wife inherit? And the simple answer is no. A wife does not inherit. A wife is not a, quote, Yorish, a person who inherits. A wife has rights under a ksuba, the ksuba document that's read under the chuppah. There are rights that are established through that. They're not insignificant, but they're not 50% of the estate or 100% of the estate. Um, daughters have rights, but they are limited to ksuba rights as well. They are limited. An unmarried daughter, for example, has a right of what's called isr nechassim, one-tenth of the property as it exists at the time that, the, that a daughter is ready to get married. Um, but other than that, well, or... If the mother predeceases, the, uh, the mother dies, the daughters may have some rights to inherit the, what would have been the ksuba, but it's pretty limited. And if it's pretty limited, so a daughter really has very little rights as such in the will, in, in the Jewish will. Um, sons inherit. And, that's a, and then there's the other overlay if there's a bechor. A bechor is a firstborn, a father's first child. A uh, father's first child has the right to a double portion. Mm -hmm. So if there are three sons, you divide the estate into quarters, four shares, one son gets two, the other, each of the other ones get, get one. Um, so those are the basic laws of the Jewish law. And there's a lot of different other differences, but we will see if we have time to go through some of the other ones. But those are the basic differences. And, and the standard will says, I leave everything to my wife, and if she doesn't survive me, I give everything to my children in equal shares. Is that valid? First of all, the first question is, going back one, is it something I should do? Is that the right thing to do? I'm an Orthodox Jew. I look and I look and I pull up my Choshen Mishpur, I put up my, my law book and it says, it should happen this way. Sons get everything. My, my son, the Bechor, gets his double portion. And then I want to say, you know what? I really don't want to do it that way. I want to give my wife everything because we're partners in everything else that we do. And that at her passing, or at the passing of the survivor of us, it goes to my children in equal shares. So I will tell you, normative halachic practice today is to do exactly that. It's to do that. There have been major rabbinic figures who have encouraged that. From, the, from Rabbi Shef Feinstein to Rabbi Shach, who uh, was the, uh, a leading um, quote, right-wing um, rabbi in, 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 in B'nai Brak, who, who told, and I had this discussion with someone who asked them explicitly, he said, I have sons, I have daughters, he said, you treat them equally. And that, in part, is a reflective of our society, because our society has put a lot of responsibilities on our daughters, and all of a sudden, in this regard, to say, no, I'm not going to do that, doesn't fit. But we have to find a mechanism to make it work. Because the interesting thing about the Jewish law is, as compared to the secular law, the secular law says, our default rules again. You want to do something, you tell us what it is. If you don't, want, if you don't tell us, then we put into what's called intestacy. Intestacy means a person dies without a will. Then we will have a state will. 
the will from the state will tell you what, what, where it goes. We have to have a system because otherwise nobody will know what to do. So we have a system. Then the system, and the typical system says the wife gets fifty percent, children get the other fifty percent. It's every place is a little bit different, but that's the basic thrust of it. Okay, so now, um, so now that we have that's the that's the the we'll call it the the secular law. Mm-hmm. The the halachic law is very different. Halachic law says that you don't have the right to control what happens to your property after death. There's a mandated intestacy. And when a person dies, this is where it goes. End of discussion. This is where it goes. And it goes to your sons, it goes to a Bukhar double portion, it goes to your sons, it goes to the daughter, the wife, depending on what the exuber rights might have been, mm-hmm. what those obligations are, they're treated as debt. Mm-hmm. And... Um, therefore, if I just leave a will that says I want everything after my death to go to my wife and then ultimately to my children, is it valid? That's the question. And so you see now where the tension is between the two systems. And the answer is a very interesting answer. Um, the, in the Talmud, the Gemara talks about, about um, Abayah says that such a thing is a concept of matana. Matana means a gift. If I make a gift of property, I buy a gift, I buy a birthday gift for my son. Um, do I have to give to all my sons equally? No, I can give gifts however I want to give gifts. I want to make a gift to my daughter. Can I do that? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So I can make a gift to my daughter. So one of the things that was said is, what happens if I leave a will that says, I, I'm giving and um, and um, by way of you, uh, by way of will, and I'm by way of gift. So what the Gemara says is that a person wants what he says to take effect, and if what I say cannot take effect because if it's after death it can't take effect. So the only way it takes effect if it's a gift. So therefore we put primary emphasis on the word gift, and as a result it's valid. So if a person leaves something that says. And I'll tell you, interesting, I think this is uh, just an observation that I made. The traditional historic language of a will is, I hereby give, devise, and bequeath. Bequeath is tangible personal property. If I can pick you it up. You know a lot of fancy words, by the way. Uh, okay. I hereby give, that's not so fancy. Yeah. Devise, that's pretty fancy. And bequeath, that's less <laughs> fancy, but still a little bit maybe more fancy. Right. Okay, so bequeath means I give away items that I can personal, tangible property I can give right. in the hand to you. Devise is the equivalent word for real estate, for something which is real estate. What is the word give doing in that, in that framework of words? Mm-hmm. I hereby give, devise, and bequeath. The very traditional language that wills have been using for a thousand years. Why? Because I say it's the source, it's the buyer is the source of that. Mm-hmm. The Talmud is the source of that. Why? Because if you say I give, devise, and bequeath, using the English words for the Talmudic expression, mm-hmm. you've created something that's valid as a will. Mm. And as a result, that got sort of, uh, because you know that the whole of the world of wills was really initially, you know, a thousand years ago, was in the ecclesiastical courts. It was, the courts were divided between what we called the church courts and the secular courts. And the whole world of wills was, was controlled by the church courts, the ecclesiastical mm-hmm. courts. 
And as a result, if you go back to uh, no, when when the when the um, the old Scottish rules that that were in place. Um, they had some things which we would say today in, in a secular sense, wow, um, there was something called fetale. Fetale meant that my son, the oldest, inherited everything. Mm-hmm. He had other brothers, too bad. Why? Because the landed gentry that was created when you had property going from one generation to the next only remained as the landed gentry if you didn't diffuse it amongst lots of different people and therefore only the oldest son was the one who inherited what was interesting that if there was no sons then all the daughters shared equally mm-hmm. um, so in a sense the daughters were you know that's why there were a lot of in those days a lot of assassinations um, because you know get rid of the son then we all share um, as the son is there the oldest son is there You're giving people ideas over here <laughs> that's right <laughs> but so they changed that that wasn't uh-huh. such a good idea um, so uh, th- there was uh, that was the history to it okay so now let's move forward for a moment and say we have these differences so is this will valid uh-huh. so there are ways in which they can become valid they can become valid by this provision in the will, they become valid other technical ways. Hushlish al deshlish is, is uh, if I take a document and I prepare the document and I give it to you as a third party, I just want you to hold this document. So under Jewish law, that will have a, that's the equivalent of what's called a Kenyan. A Kenyan is the necessary step that's necessary to finalize the document, to make it valid. Right in, in contract law, so we have rules, there has to be consideration, and there has to be delivery, and there are other aspects of it. In Jewish law, the Kenyan doing something um, tangible like a Kenyan is what makes it valid. And until I do that, I, don't do, I have nothing that's valid. Writing a will is something in the future, and therefore it's not valid until I make a Kenyan. Um, Ramosha, has, Ramosha Feinstein has written that the uh, giving, going to an attorney to sit down to do a will, provides the necessary, what's called gemiris das, the necessary completion of the thought process in order to make it valid. Mm. So, and, and I would tell you, this is the other point maybe uh, that should have been mentioned earlier. If a person doesn't have a will, there's absolutely nothing that we can do that will allow for division to be made other than purely in accordance with the halachic requirements. Wow. And that's a pretty serious issue. When there is, now, especially if there are young children, if there is a will, so there are those that you, that you can rely on. Um, the, the typical um, Besden, the typical Jewish court today, will not be looking to rely on the document itself, the will itself. And we would not today initially start out to say, okay, let's create the will, and I heard this podcast, it was a great podcast, and it said, that's all I need to do, so I don't have to do anything else. Not, not true. We're not relying on that. It's a, full, it's, it's a safety net, it's a fallback position, but it's not the position a person should initially take. So what is it? Mm-hmm. So when did the concept first get started? Who initiated the concept of bringing daughters into the inheritance world, into the world of inheritance? 
And the answer is that Rabbeinu Gershom, 1100 years ago, Rabbeinu Gershom, who was one of Rashi's rebbe's, we interviewed him on an earlier season right. in the podcast. quite a while ago. Yeah, um, and he is the one who established the famous harem de Rabbeinu Gershom that precluded people from having multiple wives. So that created, in essence, the initial shidduch crisis, because we having my daughter married before, you know. There were more suitors, there are now less suitors. Mm-hmm. So what he did is he created a system. And the system was called Shtachatzi Zacher. Shtachatzi Zacher means uh, we will give to daughters a half share. And he said, let's, let's change the system. We change the system, and the normative halacha should now be that we'll give to a daughter a half share. Divide it up into two daughters and one son divided into two shares a son gets his one share each daughter gets a half a share but we still haven't answered the question how do we accomplish that so what he developed was a document called a document of indebtedness a person has the right to say I owe you a thousand dollars now if you come to Besden you come to a court and you say he owes me a thousand dollars the first thing they'll say to you is prove it. Mm-hmm. Prove it. Well, you'll pull out a document that says he owes me $1,000. Or you'll bring witnesses to show that you lent the money and they were there, etc., etc. Um, there's no another way. If I go to court and I say I owe you $1,000, then that becomes a binding obligation on me. I can make whatever conditions I want on that very same obligation that I've just created. So this is what this is what was established. What establishes is I write a document, and I say to my let's say I have a son, a daughter, and a wife. So I say to my son, my dear son, I put in place a plan. I want my daughter to get a half a share. I want to make sure my wife is taken care of, and then ultimately you'll get what's what's there. And by the way, did I tell you that in the event you don't like my plan? And you're going to go and say, I'm standing by what my halachic legal rights are? Did I tell you that I've created a $10 million obligation to your wife and to your sister? Well, obligations, debt, has priority over inheritance. And it's that document that says, oh, wait a second, he says, I'll get nothing then. So that's that's not such a good idea. So that's one way of doing it. That's called the Shtar Chatzizacha or Shtar Hizchaivas. The document that was used, created many years ago, created for the purposes of allowing for the son to say, you know what, you're right. I, I, I don't want to take that. That's one way, that's one approach to it. Um, I, I tell people they have to be careful because I've seen people do a document and I say, how much should I put in here? put in $10 million. I said, that's not so smart because your estate is worth $30 million. And your son will say, good, give them 10, I'll take my 20, and um, you know, it's more than it will have gotten under the will. Mm-hmm. So you have to be careful how it's done. Mm-hmm. It's like all the documents. There's a process that's done with it, but it's a pretty simple process. There's another way, um, and the other way is what's called a, a, a matana shachas kaidemisa. Matana shachas kaidemisa translated mean I make a gift one moment before I die. Remember we said that after a person dies, they lose control over their assets. Mm -hmm. They don't have the right to say where it goes. It's not yours anymore. 
the right to control it doesn't go into the into the grave with you. It's, it's left behind, and you don't have the right to control it anymore. But I have the right to make gifts. So I make a gift that takes effect moments before moments before I die. And how do you do that? Well, there is again a a, a process. And, and we said before, in, 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 under Jewish law, a Kenyan, you have to do something that concretizes the, 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 the process. Um, so you have a document that says, by way of this document, this contract, I am stipulating that everything that I've done should take effect the moment before I die. And with the right to change it. I like to change my mind. So if I change my will... I have, I have to do another kidney. I have to change it again. But I can then make changes. What happens? I've now converted something which is a, a, a deathbed or a post-death, post-mortem transfer to a pre-mortem transfer. Perfectly permissible. Um, is it permissible to do that with 100% of a person's property? Much discussion about that. A typical provision that I use... Um, both for Bukhar, in order to satisfy the rights of, a, of, a, of a, the firstborn son, is a will, provision in the will. And I say, I say certain property. And it has to be property that qualifies. We can talk about that as well. Property that qualifies for the for a oldest son's double portion. Um, and I would say, okay, I would give him a double portion in these particular assets. And I want that to be by way of inheritance, not by way of a gift prior to death. And that document I just referred to has another paragraph in it, another sentence, really, or another phrase. And it says, except for those things that I specifically designate to be by way of inheritance, because I want to satisfy the Jewish law as well, and there's a benefit of satisfying it with property that takes effect post-death. So I've carved out something. With that carve-out, I've now said, okay, if I only have daughters, so I want it to go... To 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 um, to uh, to my wife, or I want to go to my daughters. So if I have a better said, if I have a son and daughters, I wanted to go something to my daughters, so something to my sons. I say, and this is an interesting. I have a handwritten document, copy of a handwritten document, written by Ramosha Feinstein, who everybody recognizes being a major, the major postdoc in America, mm-hmm. um, in which he writes out a document for somebody. He says, I hereby leave one portion to my son as a matter of inheritance and the portions to my daughter by way of a, of a gift. And that way he get, treated them equally. And uh, at the end of the day, he, he captured both rules. One rule is that you want to do something by way of inheritance. That took effect. I want to capture something by way of gift. That took effect. And that's, that's sort of the way we do it. So now, answer to your question, that's a long-winded roundabout way of getting an answer to your very simple question. I have documents, are they valid? So the way which can make them valid is do either of those two things that I said before. Mm-hmm. Either do a star hiskivis, you can either do this document of indebtedness, and it doesn't have to be done contemporaneously with the wills, it doesn't matter. You can do it today and it's perfectly valid. Do the same or in the alternative you use this Kenyan process. There's one difference in the two. One is more permanent, a Kenyan only affects property or proceeds that derive from the property at the moment that I make the Kenyan. 
is a concept in Jewish law that I can't make a Kenyan on something that's not yet in this world and what you didn't earn yet or that you haven't received yet, um, you, you, um, you can't do that. So it'd have to do it maybe on a regular basis. Whenever you update that list that you've made, you do a new Kenyan and it's pretty simple. So those are the ways in which a person can protect themselves, protect the family, um, in the event that there is a battle. If there's no battle, then truthfully, um, the, the position uh, that allows one to rely on a will without a battle, so a person go forward, and there's no reason that they, they'd have to worry about it. But one always has to protect against that possibility that they would find themselves in a, in a Jewish court, in a Besden, that, that is looking for more than just a secular will. Got it. What would be a parting thought if someone was listening to this and they wanted one strong takeaway, something to think about, something to mention to their spouse, business partner, something that when they think back to this interview, they learned an important message? What, what, what message would you want to convey to them? I would suggest that the most important message is that they need to address these issues. They should not allow these things to say, listen, I'm young, I don't need them. Um, one doesn't know what tomorrow brings. One can hardly understand yesterday. Um, one needs to, to plan, needs to have a plan in place. A person shouldn't think, well, I, I can't do this because 15 years from now, I don't know who's going to be the right... Think in five-year horizons. Mm -hmm. You think in five-year horizons, what are my needs, what are my current needs... Let me dress that now, and then if the things change, I can always change it. And um, very important that the person has in place documents that address the situations that we hope never occurs, but they do occur. We know they occur. And the extent to which a person fails to do that, so then they are doing a great disservice to themselves and to their family. You heard it here first. Okay. Very good. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for listening to a splendid episode of Kosher Money. If you're watching on YouTube, please leave a comment. Click like. And we encourage you, whether YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, share it with one friend. Just one. Not two, not three, just one. You can do it on a group chat that's like officially one. It helps us. More people that learn about us realize that the work we're doing is needed and these are conversations everyone must have and i think we're helping people people are getting more life insurance because of us people are reaching out to estate planners now budgeting uh more schools are taking this seriously living smarter jewish actually has a school curriculum um for on personal finance so if you are a school or want to get this into your school reach out to info at livingsmarterjewish.org um, Living L'chaim is doing cool things and my brother Yaakov's just getting started so hit up the other podcasts um, subscribe and don't forget to share this with one person it means a lot to us and until next week keep your money kosher Living L'chaim